0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts, and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Good evening, and welcome to this evening's event, Plug In to Housing. My name's Kate Goodwin, and I am the head of architecture here at the Royal Academy, and I am going to be chairing this evening's discussion, and it's an honour to be here on a platform with such distinguished speakers. I think you know man's need for housing is primordial. It's you know, from the cave to the primitive hut, to the house today, where we live and how we live and our relationship to the notion of home, uh, ongoing preoccupations of society across the globe. And here I think in the UK and in London particularly, where there's such an issue of kind of really high land values, there's been an escalating housing crisis, typified by a problem of undersupply and a general lack of affordability, as I said, driven by these how the high land values. And housing has rightly become a major, a central issue for the general election, and was the focus of a series of debates here at the Royal Academy um, in 2015, called the future of housing. And I hope some of you were able to join us for it. It saw four architects proposing sort of new ways of thinking about housing, looking at what the challenges were and how they, as design practitioners, might overcome it. It was also accompanied by five different debates that in a lot of cases got very heated. They looked at where we build, you know, is it on the green belt, how we build, who does the building, is it public, private Um, what's the policy that surrounds that and should support it Um, and we return again to this important subject um, coming from quite a different starting point Um, as many of you may know we have an exhibition in the architecture space uh, Peter Cook uh, by Peter Cook, um, called Floating Ideas, and it's a, a project that brings together eighty works that Peter submitted to the Summer Exhibition um, since the mid seventies. Um, and but Peter actually came; his first work was in the Summer Exhibition um, with a work that he did, a perspective for a housing project done by submitted by Theo Crosby, and it was a project that he did um, for um, for Fulham and. Um, it was a joint initiative between sort of mass house builder um, Taylor Woodrow with the local authority and it was a project that he worked with um, alongside other members of Archigram so I found it quite interesting, you know, they were doing this proposition for its major house builders, local authority, during the day and they sort of at night were designing projects like Plug-in City and this evening, that sort of forms, I think, the basis of an inspiration for t- to start off. Plug-in City proposed a sort of constant evolving in- megastructure that incorporated housing, transportation. It wasn't just about housing; it was a whole other series of networks of how we, a proposition for how we might live. Um, and it was, I guess, really inspirational at the time. But it's also interesting to think about what it might offer now. So this evening we have four speakers. Um, each will present projects from a range of from across the spectrum, from those which are realised, those which are soon to be realised, and particularly those which hope to be realised, and that might sort of propose new approaches to housing through design specifically. Um, so I'm going to invite each of them to speak for about eight minutes, and if we can, maximum ten, um, and then hopefully have a lot of time for discussion and to involve um, you as much as possible. And so to start off, we have Professor Sir Peter Cook, writer, educator, architect, member of Archigram, teacher of the bar- at the Bartlett, and now part of Crab studio, um, where they've got a whole series of projects which are now winning awards across the world um, that he does with Gavin Robottom. Right so without further ado, I'll turn over to Peter to introduce this evening.
0: evening. I'm going to be autobiographical and go back to uh, about a year and a half after I graduated from the... And I won my first competition, which was old people's housing. And you can see it at the bottom there. It's very ordinary looking, extremely ordinary looking, but I did win the competition. And and I based it entirely on my own experience of of being a kid that moved house about 20 times. Uh, And then if you look at the top, you can see a little bit later is the first sort of cabin housing that I did, which, if you look very, very closely, has the same plan (laughs) as the gas house housing at the bottom. In other words, I simply took what was a very, I think, dare I say it, ingenious bit of tight planning, almost caravan planning, and and moved it on in its expressionism. Bottom left is a page from Archigram 3, which talks about the the bits and pieces that make up such things, and of course plug-in city on the bottom. Now, if we move here, my colleagues in Archigram moved in two directions. Like we're moving in the direction of the gadgeted open space with a series of devices. More in short, looking more at the, the, the single piece of almost industrial design, that is to say the capsule. And I think it's interesting that the capsule as a theme seems to have survived. People keep coming back to the idea of capsule, even though in some cases we shall see they're not necessarily the most comfortable thing to dwell in. And I'm fascinated here by, if we go back into history, we look at at, uh, the Larsons in in Denmark uh, a century ago or more, that the the lifestyle, that the the human mannerisms of the family are very much catered for but then sort of chastened by uh, Mrs. Larsons' interior design. But the Larson style apparently... Dogmatized for the Nordic scene for many years and you can in a way in, in, in self-criticism or self-ryness one can look at, at, at a piece of my own work where one is also talking a lot about lifestyle. I don't think it's just a question of invention, architectural gadgetry. I think one has all the time to think of what, is, what are the implications of lifestyle and I return to that here there was the famous Biedermeier mannerism in Germany in, in the 19th century and then people like Tessenov, who was sort of not really wanting to be a modernist. If you look carefully at the top drawing, you see how many aspects of the Biedermeyer aesthetic are still kept but kind of edited out, which I find fascinating. And even if you go to somebody like Bruno Taut, who, when he wasn't doing Alpine Cities, was, was in fact extremely uh, concerned socialist housing, producer of socialist housing, that the interiors of his rooms... Uh, still have a a slight look back into the German tradition. You see the great big German uh, heating stove in the corner. And I can apply the same conversation to myself if if on the bottom left uh, I was looking at plug-and-clip housing, which was essentially to do with prefabrication. Nonetheless, when we come to the interior, I have a kind of preferred aesthetic, which isn't necessarily entirely the product of the methodology, it's also to do with one's taste, if you like. And and we come later to, to Jan, when he was still living with Amanda, where they bring into a, 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 a dwelling in, in, in West London, they make a piece of preferred aesthetic comfort. Uh, of course, a, a, a great thing that one was inspired by, and because of my connection with Frankfurt for a long time, was fascinated by the, the, the Siedlungen, which were done largely by Ernst May and various other architects that he brought into Frankfurt. And the key thing in that was, were, were, were things like the Frankfurt bathroom, the, in particular the Frankfurt kitchen, which if you look at it, is not so very different from visiting Ikea right now, except for the commonality of the tone, slightly different door handles, but really not much has happened since... And why should it? Because it was a bloody good kitchen. Uh, not much has happened in terms of balcony access apartments. Why should it? Because it wasn't such a bad idea. Uh, I go to an extreme case just to, to, to remain, remain that many of us, if we're really truthful, though we, though we intellectually aspire to minim, minimal... Uh, use of of, of artifacts, we, we aspire to a certain, you know, if you like, socialist principles, many of us. Nonetheless, when you go and visit Ray Capet in Los Angeles, with, who is still alive, a few years older than me, in his wonderful house with a stream running through the bottom of it, Miles Davis on on, on the extremely expensive hi-fi. Uh, that is the, the, and being a lover of L.A., it's a Californian dream and, and it's it, it almost in another territory. But I, I thought it would be wrong not to include it. I didn't want to get into the technicalities of case study houses. Or, of course, if you go back to our and we go back to Bucky. We go back to Bucky Fuller, who, after all, David Green studied with for a short time and was, was always there in the background behind plug-in, behind the capsules. But when you look at the illustration on the right of an interior of one of the Bucky Houses. It, it it has overtones also of that sort of American lush. Let's go with the comfort. You haven't quite got Miles Davis on 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 the sound system, but maybe some parallel person. Uh, I've got a little clutch of eccentrics and of course favourites. I think uh, I think many of the people at the. Roger Stoke Harbour Office and certainly the whole of we were in love with the Airstream Caravan. We still drool whenever we find one, even <laughs> if you find it as I did not so long ago in a, in a sort of backyard in Kyoto. Of all places, there is an airstream caravan. Or if you're buying if you're buying hot curry at, outside Syark, it's being sold out of a out of a uh, airstream caravan. I'm sure there are a couple in London somewhere. Uh, and and we have to think also as we return to the need for housing. Remember, those of us with a very long memory can remember the prefab, the prefabricated house. Isn't it amusing that there again taste comes in? Do you think the guy in the half-timbered prefab enjoyed it more than the guy who did not have the half-timbered prefab? And, and, and it was homes for hearers. If, the, if you, There's a guy returning from the war not to his Bondart house, but at least to a prefab. And there is another sub-tradition which we haven't got time to talk, I haven't got time, but when Peter Rayner-Bannon was alive, he and Archigram would go out to a weird place called Jaywick Sands near Clacton, where very poor people from the east of London could buy a house for £100 or £200 uh, before the Second World War. And some of them, I believe, are still oh, their progeny. Uh, there are also a lot of crooks out there, but that's another <laughs> story. Um, and of course, there is this, this thing of the minimal... So that's the minimal dwelling. The, <coughs> the, the Jaywick house was very, very small. Uh, we have Kurakawa's minimum dwelling, and we have, of course, the... the it, and a posse of Japanese that we brought along this evening may have views on this, being of a totally different generation. But we do, with respect to you sitting there, we do have this view of Japan enjoying the tightness of its dwelling. And, in fact, Tom said our... our Small flat is like a palace compared with his in Tokyo. It's it's extraordinary that perhaps there is a psychology that goes behind these. Uh, all my f- little tiny theme this evening is that in fact it's not just a question of technique, not just a question of architecture, not just a question of technology. It's also to do with the cultural style which we we consciously or subconsciously bring into it. Uh, I apologise or not to Kate who lives in a, in an apartment in. Alexander Road, and draw her attention to the fact, because Alexander Road was a very clever British response to the, to the wish to be like Atelier Five's beautiful houses that roll down the sides of, of Swiss hillsides. Uh, and in fact, that, that when I was a student of, of Peter Smithson, there was long conversation about what you could do above and beyond the. Dwelling itself, what you did in the interface between that dwelling and other dwellings and the circulation systems. And, and, and the project that was always being returned to was Spangen in, in Rotterdam, which uh, Brinkman and Van der Lucht, which uh, looks pretty much like any other housing <coughs> scene until you come inside it, which of course refers back to a whole uh, probably Germanic, Dutch, North European tradition of, of the courtyard. The courtyard is 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 the real village, is the real world, and the and the architecture shown to the street or to the city is something else. Coming inside, though, uh, there are many extensions of, of the mannerism of the interior. It, it, in Mike Webb on the left, it goes from the the cushicle on the bottom, exploding whole, a kind of explodable capsule, up to rent a wall where just the bits can be rented when mother-in-law comes around, uh, to the right where I myself want to explode the tyranny of the window and have this notion of a series of apartments that could be completely translucent. You would see the shadows of the neighbour, but hopefully not, or preferably not too much, uh, which would go with a certain kind of lifestyle. And interesting that Arnold Schein, who's known more for his his, uh, plastic capsules, when he comes to do his own interior has to use styling, and again, it's preferred styling of a certain culture, of a certain moment. Uh, I have a fetish, which I've returned to recently, Those started uh, some years ago. On the left, we see a vegetated uh, uh, high-rise apartment. Uh, on, on the top, uh, our first proper building, which was in Berlin, where we, where we jumped up and down when we discovered that the Berlin authorities would allow you to do two and a half more metres of building if you made it a winter garden. And in fact, that winter garden refers to an enormously long tradition in Berlin of the balcony, of the real balcony, not just a little pokey balcony that you can hardly get a deck chair on, but a proper balcony where you can have proper plantations. And uh, my first visit to Berlin in 71, I, the first thing I noticed was these old ladies, are all out on balconies. And so we jumped up and down when we had the opportunity to actually make that part of thing. Very, very recently, I'd returned, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I'd returned to the theme of the edge veg, the the, the notion that you could... And and having just come back from Tokyo, one was also interested in a certain kind of very simplistic, basically rectilinear apartment, but where you could then plant vegetation, and not only plant vegetation, but plant places to hold the vegetation, in a sense back to the notion of the winter garden. And in the bottom you can see that there is now the technology to do this very much more cleverly than we were aware of before. Uh, Others on the platform, I'm going to move into the issue of prefabrication. Uh, isn't it weird that, that the marketable prefab, the IKEA prefab, looks so fucking awful? Uh, I mean, just <laughs> let's face it, 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 if that's what prefabrication... It doesn't even have half-timbering on it, which at least would, would cheer it up a bit. But nonetheless, we, I don't think we should have fallen out of love with prefabrication. Top left, for those who are connoisseurs, might notice it's actually Helen and Hard who did that one. And I, I finish with with anticipating what other people on the platform would be talking about, which is the potential of new materials, of growing the materials, of, of, of wrapping, but of wrapping and folding and doing wobbly things that, that perhaps we would have had a back teeth out for in, in archaeogram grand time. But just a little bit of reminder at the top from my own work, one is that those things have at some point to come together in some kind of urban condition. It doesn't have to be rows and rows and rows and rows urban condition. nor doesn't necessarily have to be the North European courtyard tradition. But it, can, but it is an issue and it's an interesting issue. It shouldn't be ignored. And even if you make lots of, of growies onto your dwelling, there's some point at which that dwelling hits another dwelling, which is why uh, here I, I was interested in also taking the, the vegetation and its implication into the spaces between uh, but also, middle top is from uh, Los Angeles when we did Kung Fu Veg. I think comfort is something which has not been... It's always avoided by architects. We, we get nervous when we talk about comfortable because we, most of the things we make aren't very comfortable.
1: It doesn't have to be. Thank you, Peter. I'm now going to invite Ivan Harbour to speak next. Ivan is a partner at Rogers Stirk Harbour, joined Richard Rogers in 1985, and firstly came into the into the practice working on the Lloyds building, going on to the European Court of Justice, and has been responsible for two Sterling Prize-winning projects, uh, the Baraha Airport and then Maggie Centre. But more recently, and most relevant to this discussion, has been very much behind... Projects which aim to resolve sort of contemporary issues of housing. So, Ivan.
2: (coughs) Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk um, a little about um, the practices approach, um, which, as you could imagine, has a lot of emphasis on how the technology, um, how technology can solve um, any problem we have, in fact, including the housing problem. Um, this first image, of course, is this courtyard. Um, it's the, the preoccupation with technology, the ability to um, to take up, pull down, move away, reassemble. All these things um, we, we feel would give us um, an advantage if um, moving into a world where, where our traditional, where traditional construction has at, s- at some level really failed us. We can move... A long time back, this is before my time, this is Aram module, where clearly um, um, technology, um, the the concept of the building building itself, um, the, the concept of it um, plugging on to the, the city and whether it's sustaining the city or taking sustenance from it, I haven't worked out from this image. Nevertheless, clearly the, the, the concept that the technology will give us the notion of sort of flexibility, of um, future-proofness, of the ability to absorb anything that's, that's coming. Um, there are virtually no people in this. Most of them are driving vehicles. Of course, v- vehicles are probably the things we won't be driving soon. So this, this idea of future technology and how that influences architecture, which, as Peter's already said, is a rather static, slow-moving thing, um, is a debate that I think it, um, will become apparent as I go a little bit further on. So taking this to um, 20 years after after the ARAM module, um, early 90s, this is the Hansen um, housing scheme, not realized, housing scheme for um, a company in Korea that um, built ships and therefore could um, build um, capsules by way of, I, I, I guess, containers in terms of their size. But here, as you can see from the drawing, we're relying on computer control. So the notion that actually there's no one involved in this, it's assembled um, entirely artificially um, from uh, standardized modules organized around, of course, a flexible core that that connects you to, to the Earth. You can organize it in rather beautiful ways, as the completed building indicates. And, of course, this one is very well-known, the zip-up house from um, 1969. Again, technology, um, the um, ultimately extendable, taking technology from other, from other areas, from in this, in this um, instance, from the transport industry. Um, but, of course, how that solves itself as, uh, in, in terms of community, of, 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 of placemaking, it's, it's, as the drawing shows, a suburban model you can put them in the water or on land, but it's very much about the technology of making um, a place and has little emphasis on the, the nature of the place the, the, um, in terms of how it, uh, it's comfort, in fact. Um, and our first move then to the, the first project that we have realised, the previous three projects were, were unrealised, um, actually, comes from um, concerns about safety, about, the con- about conventional construction, and safety on building sites. So this comes under a, 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 um, a term called design for manufacture, so-called modern methods of construction. In the um, ten years ago, just over ten years ago, where our, um, we were teamed up with a mass house builder to produce the future. Um, one was built, um, so and I don't think there will be more. Um, but the approach was first of all to think about the way that you could you could um, standardise the way you could turn you could effectively turn into pods the, com- the complicated components, and where you could then create any urban form with the balance of space um, and. Very open about how you would construct that, and from the, um, from the left to right, you have what we call um, flat-pack construction. In the centre, you have what we might call a mixed mode, which flat-packs the big volumes and, and makes complete rooms of the small complex spaces. So on the right-hand side, there's what we call volumetric, where you bring spaces with air and all the things connected together and plug them in on site. The option that was chosen was um, the flat pack construction. So on the right there is a house on the back of a truck and it's assembled by um, people over 24 hours into um, um, the um, container and then a couple of weeks are taken to, to fit out the, the interior of the, of the house in a quite a, a conventional manner. Now the, the actual components themselves, the big panels, Um, of course are cut very precisely using CNC cutting technology using human beings that are very flexible to screw them together and then assemble them on site. So you can sort of make any shape providing it's relatively consisting of of, of large flat um, areas. Um, But the the result, um, which is not the top, the bottom one, um, is clearly something which in terms of mass market housing aesthetically is taking you somewhere else. However the, the houses above um, were the other houses that were then built um, by the mass house builder using the same technology so perhaps the beginnings of a technology that um, could do all sorts of things um, um, some of them more perhaps more desirable than others depending on what your point of point of view was aesthetically the issue about um, um, assembly the issue about um, process um, really comes, in my mind, is something that um, really c- um, um, came to light with a, a project we were involved in here, which is um, making a prouve house habitable for the 21st century. This is a beautiful six-by-six um, uh, six six house, um, and the brief we had was to essentially add bathroom, kitchen, and um, to make it autonomous. And the process of that, um, rather fascinatingly, involved raising the whole house up um, about two feet um, and sliding in trolleys of, of servicing underneath it um, to have a, these very complex um, 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 modules that all um, rely on, 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 on solar power and rely on, on um, recycling rainwater, etc., etc. The process of assembling those, which was all done, of course, in the tradition of Prouvé, with um, sort of two, two people um, and lightweight components, it took about four times as long to assemble the, the small spaces as it did, did the privé ha- original house. So in terms of alternative ways of con- constructing uh, in, in a crisis situation, we didn't think this was the answer. This, of course, will be a one-off Um, whereas the next project, uh, we hope, will be the first of many. Um, This is um, a conceptual model for um, what's called Y-Cube, and Y-Cube is a um, a concept that comes from the YMCA about providing small uh, units for um, people currently in hostel accommodation, and rather than putting them in a room in a shared house once they've got on their feet and have got a job, was to give them a place that they could call their own with its own front door, more than one room. Um, The provision here for them was, importantly for us, was to provide a place that created a bigger community, the notion of a stoop that's wide enough for them to have an outdoor space as well as an indoor space. And finally, something that actually, in terms of its scale, could be uh, made as a volumetric component and taken on the back of a lorry and put on the site, rather than assembled in panels. So the first um, example of this is in a, a suburban area in south um, west London. It will be on, the, uh, on on open house, so you can go and look at it in a few weeks. Um, but it importantly is, is about the community, the relationship of, of, of common space to, um, 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 to private, semi-private and private space um, layered away from the communal heart. Of course... In the construction of these, rather than the neighbours being uh, objecting to them, one of these just about fits in a neighbour's back garden. There were a lot of requests for one of these in um, in the back garden of the surrounding properties. So the notion of of something suddenly which is, is alien in terms of construction... in a a suburban part of town, which you would thought would be very conservative, perhaps slightly more acceptable. So these are loaded in unit by unit. They're as big as you can get on the back of a lorry without a police escort. So it's wider than a container. Containers are too narrow to live in, comfortably, we believe, but it's not so wide that you have to call the police every time you wish to go down the motorway. Um, The... Next project, um, which this is also a plug for open house, is it will be open in open house, and this is a project for Lewisham um, Council. It's social housing, uh, housing um, designed for families currently, um, um, currently homeless. Um, both this project and the previous project, why are they possible? They're possible because this method of construction is cheaper than conventional building. Otherwise, these wouldn't be, having, wouldn't be happening. Um, they are possible because these sites that they're sitting on are sites which have a temporary use. So this site in Lewisham, for example, is a site that's earmarked for future development. So Lewisham wanted a building to sit on that site for 10 years whilst they were working out what to do with the area around it. Um, irrespective of that, these are, of course, movable. They can be taken up and relocated i think the brief was at least twice in their 60-year lifetime um, but they're still cheaper building them standard once so you can pull them down after the 10 years and not you reuse them and they will have paid for themselves these are affordable to the local authority through the grants that the um, government give for putting um, families into into b&b accommodation so you can build that grant over the 10-year period now these have really taken the level of sophistication up a number of notches and here you see essentially this notion of people putting together things that have been cut very accurately all waste recycled at source out of the weather which is critical this factory could be next to a site but it's not in this instance goes on the back, in this case, a low loader. So low loaders are you like to have taller, um, um, taller units um, and assembled, again, on, on site. Um, in this instance, two units form one apartment. So there's a, there are connections, little electrical connections, that you can just plug in um, on site. They're bigger than the guidelines um, and the spaces are um, highly... Thermally efficient. They cost five pounds a week to heat water, and if you have showers, if you have baths, it's another matter. But if you just have to take showers, family of four, heating water costs five pounds a week. Um, and the most importantly is because they're all separate, they only touch lightly their neighbours. The acoustic separation between them is extraordinary, and it what, ma- it's what makes them a model, a real model for um, inner city living. So in the bottom right. They're plugging this gap in the high street, adding some colour, but as I've shown you before, the technology doesn't need to look like this, although the pilot project needs to look like this. Um, it can look like anything. We've taken... These is projects going forward, and this is a, a project that is from thinking about the UK. This is from the States. This is... Um, the amount of interest in this, in this um, off-site manufacturing has been worldwide, um, here in the States, of course, they have bigger trucks, so you can have bigger units. And this is for, um, um, on, the, on the right there, is a, a design for key worker housing in, in Washington, D.C. And we've taken that, and, and as an exercise in this year's uh, Biennale, we've adapted that concept to what we've called treehouse, which is a, not dissimilar from the Hansen housing um, that I showed um, um, right at the beginning, but in, in, in this time built with the technology, i.e. this marriage of flexibility of people, very flexible, and precision of CNC cutting um, to create a space very cheaply, um, effectively, uh, and quickly. And really ending on, almost coming full circle from the ARAM medical uh, module, we are working with doctors of the world um, looking at technolo- what are the technologies that allow this uh, um, to, to place a, a, a medical facility in any area of the world. And rather than it being an, a building assembling itself, it's actually um, a building assembled by the medical team, um, but assembled using um, parts that are very precise, um, using, um, um, so using the, the 2D cutting, the 3D printing technology. So it's very much come down to the, the, the point. It's about, very much about the people that will be using it, who will be making it, rather than it being left over to the machine. So the balance of machine with precision and technology to simplify um, how how they're involved. Um, So somewhere on the south coast of of the UK, um, I suppose how I would want to conclude um, my um, part of this um, presentation is... You know, I think what we have found is that these um, alternative methods of um, construction have only come about, for us at least, because we can make them cost-effective. They're cheaper than the conventional construction. They're sold on facts, and the facts are better, the performances are better than the the competition. So that's a good place place to to, to be. The, the approach for prove and the, and the, and the, um, the, the complexities of, of, of panel assembly really have been one-offs. So, we, we, if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I'd have said we, you will never move air around. But actually, it seems that the, it, it seems to be the right um, um, way to go for, for the time being, anyway. Um, the, I think we are moving to a state where the, the, the technology is enabling assembly to be more humanly and simply achievable, um, you know, with, with CNC-cutting 3D printing technologies. Um, you know, off-site systems in the past have, I think, possibly haven't worked because they have had to be a sort of macro answer to a sort of ma- um, macro problem. There's a huge investment in, um, in design and tooling before you can start, and, and building isn't like that. It's more micro, micro-demands, so that's, I think the success um, of the technology that has worked for us, certainly, is that it really is light on the infrastructure um, to solve that micro-problem. Thank you. We're
1: now going to have Molly Claypool, who is a designer, historian, um, and academic. She studied at the Pratt Institute, and then finished uh, at the AA doing a History and Theories program. She's on the editorial team of many um, academic journals, and a lecturer at the Bartlett where she leads Unit 19 as well as at the AA um, Histories and Theories. So, Molly.
3: Thanks, Kate. Hi. So as Kate said, I'm a lecturer at the Bartlett. Um, and uh, so primarily a lot of the work that I'm going to show you today is, is research-based. But um, most of the work that I'm, t- I'm going to show you today is um, really a collaboration between myself, Jill Retson, and Manuel Jimenez-Garcia, who are over there in that corner today, who are two brilliant designers and theoreticians, who I work with, um, and the work that I'm going to show you is really sort of the beginning of, or the work that we've been developing over the last couple of years towards launching a new research lab at the Bartlett this coming autumn. Um, So over the last few years that we've been teaching together, we've been really formalizing our research agenda using more or less these key research terms, so discreteness, muriology, digital fabrication, additive assembly, modularity, prefabrication, digital design history, I can go on, et cetera, you can read. Um, And as you'll notice, (coughs) nowhere there does it say uh, housing explicitly. Housing has become really the test bed for us to explore these ideas. So I'm kind of coming at a very different direction to housing than I think um, the other people on this panel. Now, perhaps the key idea that really sets us apart from other generations of designers and architects That are interested in these terms is really the first one the idea of discreteness and this is a movement for us away from sort of the digital design designing of continuity and i'll try to uh, clarify this in a a second so i'm not going to really present projects in detail i'm going to present sort of a a position statement really um but the projects that i'm going to show are projects that all use the same material they're all made out of timber and they're all projects that have use both analog and robotic fabrication together. So we're trying to sort of cross boundaries here a little bit between sort of digital design and digital fabrication and interaction with the user or the maker or the craftsperson. So um, perhaps a really good way to sort of get into it is that what we believe really is that we're in the pursuit of an architecture that is wholly digital. So not just from uh, digital design as in the simulation of a design, but an architecture that's wholly digital from design to fabrication and assembly. Um, and we believe, really, that this is a fundamental shift for us. It's a fundamental shift for us as, as, let's say, digital designers in the way that we use digital tools and technologies to talk about architecture, to deal with architecture. And for us, this is this movement into, into discreteness. And for us, also, this idea really allows us to, and we think holds the potential for architecture, to have a better dialogue with let's say, the building and construction industry, which digital design oftentimes has a huge sort of, uh, you know, they're backed away from, also with policymakers, with users, um, and therefore really could result in architecture becoming um, better and more efficient, let's say, in terms of cost, but also in terms of the way that we engage with, with the public. So this is our first year, our fifth year, sorry, teaching at the Bartlett. And as I said earlier, this we've always um, taught through the typology of housing um, and we're connecting this always back to the sort of modernist agenda of the 1920s, but also of course to the 60s and 70s and say Peter's project in the uh, plug-in city. We've tested this in both rural and urban scenarios. We primarily work in urban scenarios now um, potentially pretty much because that's the sort of uh, area where you, we find there to be the most explicit sort of access for us. And our next project is moving from the scale of sort of housing to the scale of the house and also really the scale of the building elements. So we're moving even more from say the modular apartment to the, to the module. And I'll show why in a second. So why housing for us? Well, um, in the world of sort of digital design or computational architectural design, or design as a whole, housing is viewed as being the most banal and also the most difficult um, typology to work with. And we find this to be really exciting potential. And there are very few architects of the the slightly older generation of digital designers that have addressed housing. It's actually really shocking when you sort of look across the board and you see sort of the biggest names, uh, let's say, out there that use use digital tools in a very explicit way as part of their design agenda who have addressed housing in any serious way. What they end up doing is they end up working, let's say, with more cultural typologies, the museum, the gallery, the public space, the landscape. And those are typically for oligarchs or oil magnets or dictators. And we are really (laughs) not trying to engage um, in that conversation. We're trying to really break away from that sort of, uh, let's say, uh, weight that we carry in digital design. So I would argue that that generation has shied away from dealing with housing, both because of that connection to that neoliberal ideology, but also could potentially be attributed to the sort of uh, hangover of the social housing failures of the 50s and 60s and the 70s, such as Robin Hood Gardens. Now, we're also obviously in a time where we have a huge need for addressing housing. We urgently need to radically rethink the way that we address housing costs have skyrocketed. Land prices are incredibly high. Generation rent uh, is real, <laughs> and those who are under the age of 35 have to think extremely creatively about the way in which they can live and uh, sustain their lives. I mean, I had to just recently purchase my, for- my first house, but with four other people. So that leads you to think, well, how is that even possible financially? How is that possible creatively? How is that possible in terms of our work? And it has forced us to really rethink the way that we engage financially, economically, and architecturally and spatially with the way that we live and we're trying to sort of engage with this all the time. Now the work that me and Jill and Manu have done have works within this context but we've placed much more emphasis on developing design methods so as I said in the beginning development of methods for design fabrication and assembly and housing is that typology through which we test these methods. These methods. Now, we're developing that connection to housing much more explicitly in the future. So one of the things that we're doing in the next year is working for the Institute for Digital Innovation and the Built Environment, which is the new research institute at UCL, as well as the School of uh, Construction and Project Management, who kind of bring into the discussion for us a conversation with industry, with business, with policymakers, public engagement, the economy, etc., now one of the first observations that we made when we started doing this work and developing this work is that there was a huge dichotomy again, as I said, between the way things were designed and the way things were built in sort of the world of digital design. So buildings that or designers that utilize digital fabrication software, digital simulation softwares, had a sort of split between these two things. They didn't really talk to each other. And you can sort of categorize them into three different types. You have the waffles, the panels, and the ribs. Yeah, And these buildings were, yes, they were digitally designed, and they're examples of architecture that is, let's say, digital. But I don't think any of these architects would really claim them to be digital architecture. But the public perception is that they are, that this is the result of sort of the digital design uh, movement or period or whatever. So what we've done is we've gone back to basics. We've said all architecture is made of parts, um, all architecture is discrete, and even architecture that would like to seem like it's continuous or smooth, or whatever, is discrete. It's made up of parts. You can see here an image from Ruskin's uh, Seven Lamps of Architecture, where you have sort of the idea of Gothic continuity is actually broken down into a series of parts or modules that can be prefabricated in some way or at least uh, modularized in some way. So what we've done here and what we've done in response to this is to develop what we call digital architectural materials. And digital materials are physical geometries. I'm going to show you a couple of examples in a second. And they have the same structure as data in a computer program. So that means that we can operate on the, on the level of the computation of the physical geometry that we're dealing with, but also in the computation of fabrication. And we sort of bypass traditional representation as a result. And a really clear analogy is LEGO. Yeah. So every piece in LEGO has a male-female connection which is the equivalent of a zero and one in a computer program. It's a quite easy way of sort of understanding this. And this obviously doesn't restrict design outcomes. What it does is it can empower design. So we're thinking about digital materials or digital architectural materials much in the same way that we think about Lego. So the design possibilities, the way that parts can combine and aggregate, can be defined by the geometry of that part and therefore the design agency of the piece itself. So for example, here, one piece... And the way that it's combined with itself can result in 16 different combinations for the way that it might be used uh, spatially, architecturally, structurally. Or a piece can be, let's say, rotated and therefore combined in a, in a multitude of ways to produce other forms of diversity. And as you begin to introduce more parts, more digital materials, and depending on the way that you combine, aggregate, and accumulate them, a single basic element can or building block can begin to hint at things like services, things like walls, things like Uh, Envelope, furniture, so we can operate on multiple scales and this is something that we find really exciting and really useful when thinking about how we might design new forms of housing. So when you introduce different scales of materials, you're able to uh, move from let's say transparent to opaque using the same kind of logic, the same kind of information embedded in this one basic building envelope. Here you can see a movement from uh, something that's very solid envelope to something that's a very transparent envelope. So this is, of course, for us, as you can imagine, quite fun. I mean, this is something that we do with our students at the beginning of every year, spend a term sort of playing. It's incredibly t- intuitive on the one hand. It's incredibly playful. But it's also incredibly serious it's a- and mathematical, in a sense. We're really working uh, both top-down and bottom-up all the time. And we're meeting somewhere in the middle. So I mentioned in the beginning, all of these projects are working both analog and robotically. We're always trying to figure out how we might have those conversations come together. So what we've discovered is that a single part or a single building block, um, a single digital material or a family of pieces within that single digital material can have enough information or data in order to fabricate parts of a building. So for example, this is one project that's finishing just now, actually, that uh, these two parts can create a whole different range of different kinds of columns. Now, if you go even further and you start thinking about space, you start thinking about okay, we have column, do we have beam? Can we make wall? Yes, you can. And depending on the sort of constraints, parameters, size of inhabitable spaces, you can begin to sort of recombine and re and and recreate different spaces as a result of this. You can achieve a chunk of, of a building. Now, we've developed this again, as I said, utilizing both analog and robotic fabrication. And the ideal setup is in between these two things. So, for example, here, um, this is a project of our students. Uh, the structural performance of a particular material, which is timber, is considered in parallel to the sort of hand of the craftsman whose uh, little dot of glue is needed to actually make this thing stand together. And, Or let's say uh, it could be something like um, a, a mortar. But it also is always considered in in relationship to the pick-and-place programming of the robot. So there's always this constant dialogue between the person, the robot, the material behavior that we have, and the, what you want to achieve out of that. So all of those parameters are evolved and developed throughout the project towards a certain goal, in this case the, the chunk of the building that I showed just then, through beam, column, floor, and wall. Now, we also on the other hand see this as a big opportunity to give agency to the user um, to decide how pieces might go together so one of the things that I think uh, is also important to note here is that a lot of these projects one of the big criticisms that we got we have got um, is that uh, they look impossible to live in and that's not really our point (laughs) at all we don't care if someone's keys fall down into the cracks in the floor. That's not really the whole the problem that we're addressing. We're actually addressing a much wider problem about how we use digital tools in architecture. But it gives a lot of opportunity to think about customization of spaces. And it, it kind of challenges us to rethink about the way that you might in, involve the user in a design process to decide how those pieces might go together or how they might need to change or have to change over a period of time. So it gives us an opportunity to say, how can we use this space Um, to provide some structural stability? How can we allow it to have some opportunity to change function, to be interchangeable? So um, one of the big questions that we ask ourselves in our work is how can we really think of new models for these relationships between the builder, between the maker, between the user and the designer or architect, and especially as the current model is clearly very much failing. And how can we provide more agency to all of these constituents and radically rethink the way that we design and build? Well, in this scenario, which was done by a fourth-year student of ours last year, um, the digital material performs as a code for construction. So you understand the building through only its joints and connection points. Now, this is the same project as this, and what it boils down to is when there's a conversation between, let's say, the architect and the, and the person that needs to be putting these joints together, is that you reduce the material down to, to just that conversation of where you need parts to go. And this provides us opportunity to deal much more efficiently with material and structural redundancy, which is material, structural redundancy is a huge problem, actually. Material redundancy, redundancy is a result of that. But it also allows us to rethink what spatial redundancy might might be as well. And those models have so much redundancy that there's a lot of room and space for us to play for us. So we we see this as a huge positive in the way that we're working. Now, this code is designed in this model as a collaboration between the more analog and more robotic aspects of fabrication and assembly. So there could be potentially partial fabrication on-site, partial fabrication in a factory, partial assembly on-site, partial assembly in a factory and there could be at certain stages a ro- the robotic involvement in the factory or on site depending on the needs of, of the project. Now if you're interested in um, following our work we're starting a new project this year so just get in touch um, and you can find us in a week at the Bartlett Summer Show, the Bartlett B Pro Show which opens on Tuesday.
1: Thanks. Thank you. And finally we have Joseph Grima who um, is the editor of Domus Magazine has been as the director of Storefront New York, curator of several biennales, Istanbul Biennale involved with the Chicago Architecture Biennale um, director of Ideas Cities and also um, it's always quite a lot to run through and founder of Space Caviar um, which uh, brings together a group of people who uh, build work, exhibit, publish, write, make films um, exploring the relationship between a uh, Spatialization of Social and Political Practice. Is it.
4: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to uh, come at this question from a completely different angle, um, in a way, and respond, uh, I guess, a little bit through uh, an intentional misreading of some of um, Peter's work and some of the work that uh, Archigram was doing in the uh, 1960s and take it a little bit as a provocation through which we might actually look at this question of housing from a completely different perspective today. Uh, I think one of the um, problems that I frequently um, come across or one of the things that I find in a way frustrating about this un- unbelievably thorny problem is the two-dimensionality with which we tend to address it. We tend to look at it as uh, a problem which is simply um, technological or simply um, economic or simply um, uh, related to fabrication or any single one of these elements, uh, but there's a very—we have a huge amount of difficulty in understanding this complex question of the home uh, or of housing uh, from all of these different perspectives simultaneously. And this, in a way, led to um, the this project uh, SQM, the Quantified Home, which was uh, a book that um, was edited by uh, Space Caviar, my studio, uh, last year, and with contributions from a lot of. Um, different people, different perspectives, some maybe even in the room, uh, a lot of Londoners for sure, uh, that attempted to really look at this uh, question of the home as something that uh, defies any reduction to simple terms. Um, And this is something that we uh, continue to address in the studio, but also we're looking at in um, the unit that I run together with Pernille Orsted, who's here in the audience at the AA, um, which is uh, the unit's called Crypto Architecture, and looks at um, some of the issues that we're going to be talking about in this brief presentation. Uh, but the first way I wanted to um, kind of refer back to Plug-in City is uh, this graph, which was uh, part, actually one of the um, uh, excerpts excerpted from the book. Uh, which actually looks at the home as a plug-in device. It refers back to this um, brilliant provocation, I think, Pro- Plug-In City provided, which was the idea of the home as something that is infrastructural, something that's plugged into a larger system. Um, and so we were uh, tr- simply trying to look at... Um, the first way we were trying to look at the home as a complex system was its connectedness. And, of course, when you say connectedness in the home today, of course, we immediately think of smart homes of... Um, internet of uh, ADSL and uh, fiber optic cables and so on, but of course, the home is connected, and uh, the history of connectedness in the home is much older than that. It goes all the way back to the uh, first flushing toilet, which uh, we discovered is actually 2500 BC in um, Pakistan, uh, or uh, the first clean water supply to, uh, supply to continuously run through a home, um, which is the, uh, which was introduced in uh, 1700 BC. So there's a very, and of course all the way through to gas lighting and the gas-fired kitchen, uh, district heating, electric lighting, the cable radio which came before cable television. At the home is this, uh, it's almost like a long history of um, converging channels of input and output that all converge in a single place. And each of them always uh, carry with them a very specific Sort of um, influence that they, they, they then impart on the way that we inhabit this space and the way that this space determines the way that we live uh, and the culture of and our, our culture in a very complex sense. Um, and so I think there's something brilliant about this um, notion of plug in city as. An investigation beyond the simple uh, kind of the aesthetic reading, which, of course, was incredibly influential um, in in the decades, the years and decades that followed. uh, I think there's um, something much larger at play here, which is actually an allusion to um, a kind of a cultural critique of the uh, technologically saturated landscape, um, which, of course, is something that has become... Uh, incredibly pressing on us at the moment Um, and that kind of, in a way, this technological saturation, the density with with which technology actually regulates the way that we inhabit our homes and inhabit the city is inversely proportional to the criticality of, or is actually directly proportional to the criticality of this housing crisis. Um, And so I think there's actually something kind of Interesting. Then this, uh, the similarity between uh, Archigram and Instagram as a platform. Uh, I don't know whether uh, Archigram actually inspired Instagram. Actually, that would be a brilliant <laughs> exhibition. The RA um, from from, Insta- from Archigram to Instagram, the technologically saturated landscape, and how uh, Instagram has become this sort of uh, a, a window onto uh, the, the world, um, a sort of a, a complete that's completely transformed the way that we relate socially. Um, in a way that I think this building was, this drawing was alluding to um, already back in 1964. I believe this one's 1964. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Um, and that um, that actually leads to um, another way in which I think that this project was incredibly prescient, which is uh, it happens that 1964 is also the year that the um, sociologist Ruth Glass. Coined the term gentrification uh, through an observation of certain conditions that were unfolding here in London, the way in which the city was actually uh, certain transformations that at the time were pretty much unthinkable. The idea that the inner city of London would become a desirable place in which there would be an influx of wealthy uh, of the wealthy displacing uh, its long term inhabitants was something that in one thousand nine hundred and sixty four was completely unthinkable and, of course, now has, become, has come to be possibly the defining phenomenon of the city. Um, I think that that's very interesting that that came at pretty much exactly the same time as this intuition, as the speculative uh, vision for the future of the city. Uh, so in a way, I guess the kind of argument that I'm making was that um, Plug-in City was uh, responding to a condition that had not yet come to fully manifest itself but with which we are now painfully uh, familiar uh, which is an um, almost universal and um, certainly a pretty extreme spike in a condition in the, um, uh, in, in the value of real estate. Um, real estate comes to Occupy, and this is a graph that kind of shows uh, the similarity between a number of different conditions around the world, from Australia <laughs> to Denmark to UK to Ireland and Spain, um, which uh, shows a peak um, at a specific moment. Of course, the, this, the data runs up until pretty much um, 2014, which is when the kind of post-crisis, um, uh, uh, the effects of the crisis were beginning to wear off and the um, uh, prices were beginning to take off again. But there's a uh, almost it, it was, what I think is interesting about this data, and it's pretty much similar. This is um, on a national scale, but a similar graph could be drawn on for any of the major cities, New York, London, um, uh, Paris, uh, and so on, uh, in which there is a kind of a constant and progressive escalation of the cost of real estate per square meter, which is actually pretty dramatic. I mean, we're talking in many instances over a period of just 30 or 40 years and tripling of, um, of the, the value of the price. And the only places that escape from this are, um, in fact, uh, Germany, um, Germany, which is, has a very strong policy of controlling real estate in, both on the rental and the sales market. Um, and this, again, this, a similar... Um, interesting uh, piece of information related to the the, uh, the relationship between land capital and housing capital and, the, and its uh, importance within the composition of uh, a nation's um, of, of capital within, uh, on a national level. Uh, housing undergoes uh, for a, a relatively brief period of time, if you look at it historically, through a 30 or 40 year period, comes to dramatically take off and to become probably, besides um, to, to, to become the primary composition of the capital of any uh, Western nation uh, or Western advanced economy. Uh, and so the condition that I think you begin to kind of see uh, emerging from this um, analysis is a uh, situation in which the square meter, the idea of space, the, the idea of um, uh, domesticity itself, comes to occupy a position which can no longer be destri- described in simply um, spatial or architectural terms, but has actually become a financial instrument in itself. Uh, real estate and uh, land, and, um, and, and the, the square meter, could almost be described as a, c- a form of currency, or something that we trade, that's something that occupies value as much primarily, in fact, within the market and only secondarily within uh, as use value. And, of course, that has um, a whole series of uh, very interesting cascading um, consequences, uh, of course, one of which is IKEA that Peter referred to at the beginning. And it's very interesting that more or less in the middle of this, uh, just as this kind of very rapid escalation of value is taking off, around the year 2000, the turn of the millennium, is precisely the moment in which the IKEA catalogue overtakes the Bible as the most published uh, volume uh, on a yearly basis, um, and so this uh, again, this is another picture that I believe was taken in uh, just more or less five years after plug in city, which kind of is this very ironic and extreme um, depiction of a space which is uh, a, a, an urban situation which is non-indeterminate, uh, there's uh, a condition of work going on um, while uh, sort of uh, a vehicle, has uh, uh, multiple activities all collapsed into this slightly comedic uh, situation that of course uh, we, we kind of smile at and we kind of think is uh, sort of funny. Uh, but the, what is actually interesting is that that um, extreme condition, something that kind of represented in that way seems to us completely foreign and alien, is actually possibly the condition that, that, that describes, that actually best describes the way that we inhabit our homes today. One of the consequences of this technological saturation is that there is no longer any substantial or concrete distinction between the space of labor and the space of, uh, of domesticity. Uh, labor is something that comes to saturate every, every um, uh, corner of our existence, every moment of our existence. Uh, to the point that, in fact, IKEA, which has this very Scandinavian, um, realist uh, v- uh, attitude towards, um, ham- uh, towards domesticity, uh, conducted a survey in a number of cities, one of which was London. And in London, they asked, uh, Londoners, how many, um, how many of you actually do work before you go to work? Um, and typically by answering emails or something like that. And... About 40% of Londoners replied, yes, we do. Um, and then they, they uh, then proceeded to break it down into which spaces they did that work in, uh, and the surprising 12% of people admitted that they had done work while sitting on the toilet before they went to work. <laughs> and, th- and that kind of con- that condition that I think in 1964, when drawing Plug-in City, you would have uh, even um, I think Peter would have been considered completely stark raving mad if he'd uh, said that something like that was going to come to pass, and now it seems completely normal. It's something that the, um, the smartphone has just com- com- completely normalized into existence. So uh, I guess the argument is uh, what- what's interesting is this condition of deep stratification that has completely transformed what ex- exactly defines the home, what actually makes up the home. It's no longer something simple or straightforward. Uh, it's not only a space of... Um, Relaxation and uh, and uh, distance from um, the rest of society, but it's also a space of labour. And of course, Airbnb, as a company, has had a brilliant intuition on how that could be taken to the next level by also kind of creating a a, a, a business model around the stratification of. A condition of privacy conjoined with a, uh, a position of micro, a, a condition of micro entrepreneurialism inside one's own home, where one is continually negotiating the boundaries of what is uh, private and what is public, what is making money, and what is uh, actually out, what exists within the marketplace and what exists outside the marketplace. Um, and then, of course, uh, in parallel, there's this. Uh, um, Uh, situation, this ongoing phenomenon of uh, a a technological saturation that reaches pretty much every um, element around us, everything that is Uh, that is uh, occupying our homes that we're interacting with on a daily basis, uh, giving them agency, making them sentient, uh, giving them the power to actually respond and to also uh, listen to us and to gather data. Uh, Nest is um, famous for having introduced a thermostat that is brilliantly designed and remarkably um, easy to use promptly was bought out by Google um, and uh, became this uh, extraordinary, um, extraordinary global array of sensors that we voluntarily introduce into our own homes that are continually listening to us and tapping into uh, and able to monitor our data, and this is something that we do completely voluntarily in the name of connectedness, convenience, and also ease of use. Um, and, of course, all of these things taken individually are completely innocent and completely fine. There's, nothing, there's no sort of uh, paranoid conspiracy theory here. Uh, but what is interesting is to consider how, when one cumulatively takes all of these things and cum- cumulatively considers what the implications are for the home, how fundamentally it actually transforms uh, our, the definition of the space that we always tend to con- ad- address through uh, in terms that I think pretty much date back to the Victorian era. Um, and so, this, I, I wanted, in conclusion, I wanted to show you a, um, a project that we did um, kind of in response to the set of conditions that kind of takes this uh, absurd to the extreme, but also refers back to one of, I think, the brilliant intuitions of uh, much of Archigram's work in the Plug in City, which for the first time really questioned the notion of the architectural <coughs> emblem, what, it, what is it that actually defines the home, um, what, are the, what are the conditions that actually establish a boundary between an interior and exterior, what's private and what's public. Uh, and of course that's a, a task that's usually left up to the wall. The wall is something that we're familiar with, it's generally made of brick, or perhaps might be made of wood, it has windows in it and so on. Uh, but of course in this condition of, um, uh, in the condition that we've just described, uh, It's not quite so simple because, of course, much of the communications, much of what we are actually, uh, the activities that take place in the house are legible on a much broader spectrum than that simply of visible light or even of acoustics. Uh, And so if you see um, uh, in this graph... Uh, that little very, very narrow band is the band on which the, the, the wall typically addresses, which is that of visible light. And so we began to think about what would it actually mean to um, design uh, a house, a home, a deve- domestic envelope that actually looked at a broader definition that's actually completely disregarded, that actually kind of addressed this condition in which the nest is broad- broadcasting back to Palo Alto and completely disregarded the aspect of visual permeability. Uh, and so the, it became this sort of idea of thinking about how smartness could be, uh, and not, not a sort of a, a revolt against the smart home as a concept, but more an, an attempt to mediate, um, performatively mediate the relationship with technology. Uh, and so this was um, a kind of initial, this was supposed to be uh, these little spots of data moving around, an animated GIF. Uh, no, maybe it is. Yes, it is. It's moving. Um, and that was kind of the impetus for, of the Ram House that attempted to look at the um, relationship with the, the idea of the data of, of uh, the home as um, of data as a form of oil uh, that has a certain value. The way that oil is extracted from the ground, data is extracted from the home, and how this um, the the the, uh, the the production of this data is something that could be the control of which could be put back into the hands of the inhabitant of the user. Uh, as opposed to being something that's completely controlled from the outside. So, uh, and it was mostly a sort of a performative um, action um, in which a series of screens could be um, uh, all opened or closed or lowered or uh, raised in order to uh, produce a set of different conditions that could be adjusted according to the kind of degree of privacy that one expected for certain activities. Um, and this is a, uh, uh, a photo of the um, installation, the prototype in... Milan, in the courtyard of a palazzo in Milan, um, and uh, and it was uh, it was more, I guess, really an, an attempt to respond to a um, a kind of uh, questioning what exactly the home actually is today, in a, uh, from a broader range of perspectives than the, those that we're uh, typically um, accustomed to addressing. So that's uh, uh, where I, that's my contribution to the discussion. Thank you.
1: Thank you all we 've got about fifteen minutes um, to wrap up quite a lot of' got a big discussion. Um, I just maybe we can start with I think it was quite interesting. Joseph offered a, a sort of response I guess to plug in cities to what he thinks it how it 's relevant today and how it's sort of changed i 'm wondering Peter if you can reflect on maybe a moment of what, maybe everybody, about you know how what it was responding to at the time and what you see it as kind of well, generating... Well, I think since
0: we've only got 15 minutes, I'm going to cut to the taste of you? what I want to say, <laughs> having made notes of all of you, which
1: is, I think, it, it strikes me that a lot
0: of the most powerful moments in architecture or even dealing with the, these particular issues are when, it, are when we celebrate something. I'm using the word celebrate very deliberately to sort of heighten the... Because um, you could say that at a certain moment we were celebrating technology at another moment, you know one's celebrating the particular you guys are celebrating the 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 method, the production method. you're celebrating the the ether in a sense, and, and, and I think all of these celebrations are incredibly valid, particularly in, in, in academic circles, but then in distance you say is it possible also to celebrate something that is to do with what people actually do? And I think all of us sometimes miss the point that, that, that it's, it's a collective issue, so that I find myself now celebrating the vegetable, the vegetated thing. It's only a pe- particular piece. I, I say, OK, it might be modularized, might be prefabricated, might have capsules within it or not, but let's just take this particular thing because it it interests me to do so. And for the moment, I celebrate that. But I think there is the the issue of... of, When you brought back the issue of the home, I think that's very important, because in the end, in a way, the home is more important than the housing. It's more important than the dwelling. And I think a whole lot of things have happened. Like you you said, you're... And I know that you may be five people, not four, any minute. So that you're saying you're five, four to a house. That means, you, you know, do you have two bathrooms, one bathroom? Do you share the kitchen? Blah, blah? We, we know all those implications. And, and, and even my generation's grown up through things where there were, you know, ten people in an apartment designed for four, five people in an apartment designed for one, people sleeping on the floor, then in a tent. And, and, and some of the abstract notions of add-on and plug-in and plug-out and, and move the thing according to digital impulses or whatever they have... That's great. Where do you put your socks? And that's really interesting. And to me, uh, I think dealing with those situations also, you can celebrate life. You can celebrate being in a twosome, in a foursome. You can celebrate having too many dogs or, you know... Eating out and never eating in, and they I think can be tremendous celebrations that could be incorporated into things rather than say we have got the best wobbly panel or you know we've got the most responsive ether or, or, or you know the, the, the best most consistently digitalized joint. that's lovely, and we've all, we all do that, but I think there's something beyond that and many of the things that have happened in our own experience experience, we we still go back to the box, all the capsule, all the thing with the bit of a balcony, you know, because it's a sort of form of, I mean, okay, it's economic, but that, and, and dare I go back to history, that the first drawing that I showed for Thea Crosby was when we were looking at extremely high density housing. The motivation for that Pullham study was nothing to do with new ways with panels or you know da 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 it was actually how many fucking units can you get on a piece of, of railway land at the back of Pullham. And we got a lot of we 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 surprised ourselves by getting, you know, whatever it was, four hundred to the acre, some some horrendous quantity. <laughs> and our uh, job was then to make it look acceptable. And so this, these conversations have been running round and running round. But I think that the, the, what is interesting to me intellectually about the IKEA house is that it doesn't come from the notion of house. It comes from the notion of cupboard, sink, bit of space, knock-down bed, and then, oh, we seem to have got a house. But we didn't need to have seemed to have got a house. So I think that, that your comments come back for me, in a circle, with you two guys somewhere sitting in the middle, lovely, amazing stuff, but the issue needs you but can't stop with you. Though as academic or as wonderful production architects, you probably have to sit within your your box. And it's for Joseph and I from different (laughs) ends to, to say, yes, 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 we'll take that on board, but it's not... Where it really ends, but I'm maybe being arrogant by so saying.
3: I mean, we, um, I can respond. We, we, one of the things that we always challenge the students that we work with is to design the toilet. Like, the toilet is, needs to be present. How do you design a toilet that is made of the same unit that you might use to design a floor? And where does the dogs hang out?
0: And of course yeah. the best ideas and come so when you're is, sitting on the toilet. Right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, no and so
3: there's always this level of, That's why work. of <laughs> there's always this level of experience that drives those discussions, but it's difficult in a ten minute presentation mm-hmm. to show that outcome as well.
2: I mean the one, <clears throat> the one thing i want to say about home and what has been fascinating about the things that we've managed to realize is that within an environment where we're we're told constantly that we can't afford to do this actually the two key projects have been for people who have have no homes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Mike, I can talk about them all I like, but actually the people to listen to are the people who've received one Um, because the difference between having nothing and talking to these people, many of them, any of us in this room, a sequence of five problems one after the other will put you out of any chance of a home. So to get, to, to get back into that place, the, you know, I think the uplifting thing for me has been that um, we have able, been able to do it without, build, without building a whole host of um, private residential for sale to ensure that they're realised. They, they are genuinely being commissioned by a charity, by a local authority... And for people genuinely in need
1: Peter made a comment before of home is impo- is more important than housing I think it's quite an interesting question and it does draw into a relationship something I mean the home is something we so it, it's a really emotive term I mean I think people get very impassioned about the desire to own it and how they the feeling that it's a right to have it's a place where you commune and it's a place that you become gives you protection from something or with the world coming in or out and I I think it's maybe something to pursue a little bit. I mean, is it about ownership? Because I was, you know, I was interested about the IKEA catalogue suddenly becoming the most printed thing. Is that about people wanting to own something, be able to shape their own home? How does that then relate to the housing? You're talking about IKEA catalogue suddenly being mass-produced as well. And I wonder if you know you can reflect a little bit about home to housing.
4: I think it's actually completely the opposite. That um, IKEA, the the, the Dramatic rise of the IKEA catalog's print run is the expression of the um, disc, uh, uprootedness of an entire generation and the need to continually adapt to um, landing and taking off again. So, I mean, you could also call IKEA furniture disposable furniture, which has the benefit of not, it, 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 it unburdens you of the need to ship it to the next place because you just throw it out. And that's um, actually that's something I think that um, there's a, uh, an office here in London, OpenDesk, are trying to deal with by uh, also making it possible to fabricate on site and make things flat packable and be able to reuse them. Uh, but I think it's uh, I think that in, in fact this is possibly um, the, the Airbnb in many ways mm. the same thing. It's a, it's providing a solution to a situation of uprootedness that is uh, actually a phenomenal market um, and in fact there was a very interesting article just last week there's a um, i think i can't remember if it's pittsburgh or which city in the u.s is actually trial trialing a program where uber is providing public services public transportation and so it's kind of filling the need for the city to be able to ship around uh, to move around move people around the city and and it kind of leads to a situation where you can actually imagine Airbnb being tasked with dealing with social housing questions. And uh, I mean, I think it's a completely dystopian and horrifying uh, prospect. But un- unfortunately, the market forces are such that it's real. And these and these companies do have a lot, a little bit like IKEA. They're the only ones who seem to be able to actually wrap their heads around a, such a, a cold. Um, analytical view they're, they're actually able to see what is happening in front of them and to accommodate it and i think that's something that is um and of course it's an incredibly difficult problem to be so reactive to be able to react quickly enough but i think it's something that we need to get much better at doing both in terms of policy in terms of design in order to not allow our cities to be swallowed by um, corporation corporate uh, uh, com- completely immaterial corporate entities that actually don't it's not even like a, a hotel chain where it belongs to the hotel chain it's something completely evanescent and and and, and completely unrooted in uh, in the city it has actually no presence there
1: does that then draw in ideas of agency you know i was thinking about Airbnb is one way to have a degree of agencies i mean in- Shifting something from the market, I mean, you know, you brought up the idea of agency at the user. Mm. Um, how, I mean, how's that? How important is it in both of your works? Maybe agency, because you provide a, you provide something with almost no agency to the user. Do you with a prefab? Is there a degree of it? I mean, because it, I mean, it seems important to you. Do you think it's?
2: I, think you have to put it in the, the context of, as I say, the work. The work that we've been doing is is. To provide for people who don't have a choice—that yeah. could be any of us. So we are—we're all talking from a privileged position. I—I I think that the—the—the the, the notion of of being able to find a way to supplies um, a home for um, for anyone on that basis, on the basis that there's someone with nothing, a home for anyone, without um, the or with, I should say within the financial sort of devices available without um, necessarily um, a private organisations profiting from it or arguing that they need to de- develop um, um, corresponding um, profit-making part components, or um, um, the fact that we prove that that is possible through... Um, through Dealing with, the, in a sense, the most difficult end of the, the whole process means that I think we, it, should be up, it, it should be an up, very uplifting consequence. And, and we know, though, that, that there are a lot of private organisations very interested in what we've done on those grounds, and possibly, just possibly, it might um, um, do some small thing to alleviate the, the, the crisis. Mm. To not always coming back to the same answer.
3: Agency for us is really how much information can you embed in a single module, a single part, and, and allowing that there's just enough information that someone can have the confidence to play with that and discover what their agency might be using that. And I think there it's about being able to bring, let's say, inhabitants or users or the public or whatever um, demographic into the process of designing what that part might be. So we don't have this assumption that all buildings are made out of um, whatever, steel beams or bricks or whatever. It's made out of and constructed by something else that you don't quite know what the outcome will be as a result of that person playing with it. And we discover that through
1: that process.
0: I think there's an interesting line of country in, in thinking about how, how little or how much can give you a nice sense of identity for something. I mean, when our son was very small and we were travelling a lot, uh, we would take a little eider down of his and one soft toy or maybe two soft toys. And even if we were in New York or LA or Tokyo or somewhere, which we were, he identified with that, that thing Now, as he got older because it got more elaborate. Now, I think pe- people do. I mean, you know, some people are quite happy if they've got a photo of their grandmother and their boyfriend and, a, you know, one old soft toy. And that's it. Uh, Other people demand more. They demand a certain, maybe, quietness. Or they demand a... You know, I I have a fetish. I I was very unhappy the one half year in my life when I did not have a tree outside the window. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else I've had a tree. Uh, You know, I I don't do much with trees, but they need to be there. That's a a psychological thing. And I think this hasn't been examined not nearly enough because we come with our own all of us, with our own agenda for what would be nice. Wouldn't it be nice to have a, a, a Broyer chair? Or wouldn't it be nice to have a... a and maybe they isn't so nice. What, what they want is their old rusty toaster that the that, that, that toast pops up in a certain way, even if that doesn't appeal to me. And I think not enough work has been... You know, irrespective of whether it's cheap, expensive, you know, uh, it's important not only for for um, the expensive house for Ray Cape to have his Miles Davis. It probably matters to him more than, you know, the stream running under the house, the whole thing. But I might be wrong. I think it's important for our son to have his soft toy and, and the, the, the thing. But I think lots of those things do exist, and we don't, as, as architects, we tend to be... We go for the more tangible, even if it's produced by intangible methods, because it's sort of... We can handle it. You can handle your... your we can all handle our territory. I'm at the moment handling bushes tacked on top, but it could... But actually, I might be missing the point. You know, maybe there's only 3%. People want a fucking bush in the corner of the room, but what they really would like is to see a picture of their granny's cottage. <coughs> and I was at one point very interested in... in, in and I'm sure somebody's working on this, and I, once, I heard it from Mike Davis way, way back when he talked about various kinds of smart glass, and I thought, ah, if you could have a window, you look out of your window, you can program it to get the cricket scores or Granny's Cottage or Memories of Old Kyoto or the smell and atmosphere of your first home with your beloved, whatever. And that all happened on the window. Hey, if somebody can do that, I think that would be a breakthrough. Now, that, again, of course, very rapidly becomes a, a fetish... Architectural thing. I think. Uh, it's all going to be solved if we have the magic window because you can simulate. And then some bugger comes along and says, I don't even ever look out the window. <laughs> you know, but there's something wrong with my pillow. Or <laughs> well, I don't like waking up at eight in the morning. So I think this whole territory, i don't know what I'm, I'm, I'm not really talking about sociology. I'm not just talking about lifestyle. I think there is a whole territory there that somebody, probably not me, but somebody sitting here could. Could develop, which could lead to things that would intrigue all of our fetishes and be used by them. I'm thinking of your funny houses with the things sticking up, but then somebody coming along and saying, what happens if we cover it with duck feather? And or yeah, what happens absolutely. if we paint it all red? Or I'm going to convert it into my memory of auntie's old box room. <laughs> you know?
3: I, mean, I, 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 think
0: there's ter- I think there's a tremendous territory out there for that. Whatever I'm referring to, well, I don't even have a name for it.
3: I, mean, I, I think there's a, a really nice example for that, actually, which is the, the, in sociology the story of a teacher coming into a room with a toy that can do 15 different things. It can buzz and beep and twist around and spin, and she comes into a classroom of children and she goes, look what it can do, and she beeps it. And then to the other group of children in another room, she just leaves it there. And the kids in the beep room only beep it, and the kids in the other room discover what it can do and how it can make a whole cacophony of sounds. I think that is probably something... I mean, that's something that we're interested in, but we provide the toy, not necessarily the outcome.
0: But it's something to do with theatre. In a curious way, it's some sort of behaviour, theatre, Lifestyle, it's clever.
1: Um, I'd like to thank all of the panel for their contribution this evening. And to also say um, the show Floating Ideas is floating in there for another month. So if you want to go back, look at drawings from the 60s right up until now, the VEG Projects. uh, the show is on in the architecture space. It's free in the Royal Academy. Please do go in and look at it. We're back here next week with John Wardle, an Australian architect, who does not so much housing but some really beautiful uh, single homes in the country. Um, and then again in another couple of weeks for another talk in this series, which is looking at the new methods or approaches to housing that uh, might be inspired by Archigram as well. Um, and the rest of the program you will continue to hear about. But please join me once more in thanking um, all our panel and um, our supporters this evening who are Turkish Ceramics and the Drew Hines Endowment for Architecture. So thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.